Well, welcome to Let's Ask an Expert, episode 10, hitting double digits, a show where a novice host asks expert guests above average questions. I'm your host, Andrew Smith. Thanks for listening, wherever you may be. Hey, if you want to follow the show on social media, and I suggest you do, go find us at, at Let's Ask an Expert, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, if you want to subscribe and listen to the show wherever expert podcasters can be found, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and elsewhere. All right. Well, my guest at this time is an expert on geek culture and costume design. She's an accomplished writer, podcaster, and YouTuber. And work and analysis can be found seen over at the Daily Dot, dailydot.com, where she covers geek culture and fandom. She also appears as a film and TV critic on BBC Radio. And her latest work is a new YouTube channel called Behind the Scenes, where she answers the questions, among other things, what do costumes say about our favorite characters, stories, and society? Do yourself a favor, connect with her on Twitter, at hello underscore Taylor, that's T-A-I-L-O-R. Please welcome to Let's Ask an Expert, Gabby Baker-Whitelaw. Gabby, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for being here. Uh, tell our audience where you're from originally and where you currently reside. Well, I am from Glasgow, Scotland, and I currently live there as well. Mm. And Glasgow is kind of the second of the, the big two cities in Scotland. Uh, Americans are more likely to have heard of our capital, Edinburgh, but uh, I would say Scot- uh, Glasgow is a little bigger. It's kind of like the, the Pittsburgh of... Uh, of uh, Scotland. <laughs> okay. What's the weather like right now out there? Well, the sun sets at 5 p.m. <laughs> so it's dark and rainy. Dark and rainy. Okay. Well, that, that's not too much different than here in Ohio a few days ago. So uh, it's just, but we get to enjoy the leaves on the ground and the pumpkins out and all that sort of stuff. Not that you can't enjoy that over there, but that's, that's kind of like the balance. It's the fall balance. Yeah, we've got loads of lovely autumnal leaves at the moment. (laughs) Excellent. Um, And in keeping with tradition on the show, I invite all my guests on Let's Ask an Expert to enjoy a drink with me. It can be alcoholic or non-alcoholic, whatever you prefer. Gabby, what did you end up going with today? I'm having a glass of water. (laughs) Very unexciting of me. Straight uh, straight from the tap, bottle, we got. Straight from the glorious Scottish tap water, which comes off a mountain somewhere. Now that. That has a story to it. That sounds, that sounds romantic. See, I, I like that. That's good. It's simply just water. Yeah, right? it's the same stuff they put in the Highland uh, Highland Spring bottles. Is just Scottish tap water. So doing pretty well, really. Okay. All right. Well, I have uh, some hard cider, which I actually just finished. I was sipping on it pre-show uh, from the old schoolhouse winery, and that is. It's not in Dayton, Ohio. It's in Preble County, Ohio. It's a rural county about maybe 45 minutes from here. And they took a took a schoolhouse that was, I think, built in the 1800s and uh, recently turned it into a winery. And they also make cider, which is quite delicious. And then I have a, you know, I don't want to get it too out of hand. I also have water, but it is Kroger purified drinking water. Um, not from the Highlands. Just uh, probably out of a lake somewhere. I don't know. Non-BPA. That's what it says in the bottle. It's good. Will keep me uh, will keep me in line. Um, okay, well let's let's start with this. Of all the different topics, and I mentioned this, you know, kind of in the beginning parts of the show, and all the different topics that encompass geek culture, with many. 
What made you want to start a YouTube channel about costume design? Well, I find clothes and costume design fascinating and I've actually been writing about them kind of longer than I've had my current job, which is kind of a combination of film TV criticism and uh, sort of geek culture journalism. Before that, when I was still in college, I had a blog called Hello Taylor, hence my uh, Twitter name, which was all about kind of fashion and costume design that I just did for fun when I was starting out as a writer. And um, I'm, I'm just very interested in like the stories that we see told through costume on film and sort of the cultural narratives that we see in like fashion trends and that sort of thing. It's something I've been interested in since I was a kid, really. Like as a person, I am not a particularly like super trendy per um, person, like in terms of my fashion sense. I mostly just wear like black leggings and a black leather jacket every day. <laughs> but um, I remember like as a kid, uh, you know, like when you have like a project assigned to study as like a young child, when I was 10 or 11, everyone was told to, you know, choose a topic they found interested, interesting and write a little project about it, as one does at sort of grade school age. And everyone did like sort of a normal topic where they go and write about their favourite football team or a historical figure or a book report. And I turned in this like book about the history of like the Western uh, like fashion and uh, costume history with like fabric samples that I'd made and diagrams of corsets and stuff. Um, and it's not that I'm saying I was a particularly academic child. I was not like top of the class, but I was so obsessed that I was like, here is this book I've written about costume design. And I uh, haven't really looked back since then. It's just something I've always found very intriguing. Well, that that sounds like quite a accomplishment project within itself of, of what you did. And yeah, I... You know, the, the interesting thing about this show and about this interview with you is I, I don't think I'll ever look at costume design the same way. So you, you've accomplished that, at least with me. It's just that well, I, it's I, think I like what I want to hear. That is the most flattering thing you could say about watching my YouTube videos. <laughs> well, it, it, what it is, though, is it's, it's I think there's this thing in, in art and in photography and in fashion as well that's, that a lot of people like what they're they know they like what they're looking at or they they know that they're interested in some way what they're looking at they maybe don't know why right and i i, I think your analysis we're going to get into this in a little bit uh really kind of explains the why it, it explains like what that says about the characters what it says about the film settings what it says about societal and cultural norms and or maybe it's just that you know the fabric's flashy, or that it, it contours the person, the actor's body nicely, or or something like that. But it still, those things are intertwined a bit, and I I like that. I like that analysis. Like again, it's it's fantastic work, and I, I was it, you know if anyone listening to this hasn't checked it out, please do so behind the scenes uh, on YouTube. But it, it's it's fantastic deep dive analysis on it, and I was never. I always wanted to kind of learn more as I was watching these videos too. So it's. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, I always like to hear when um, listeners or readers say like they've not been particularly interested in costume design before, or it's something they've not really thought about because it is kind of a niche topic, but it's completely ubiquitous in pop culture. And I want to be able to just give people the tools to understand it better in an easy way, which is not difficult because, I mean, for the most part, I'm going to be talking about very mainstream films, you know, blockbusters, films that most people will have heard of, you know, Alien, Batman, that sort of thing. And uh, 
I mean, I really think that should be one of the key goals for any film critic, right? Because I feel like a lot of the time, the sort of mainstream discourse about film criticism and pop culture criticism, especially on the sort of geek culture side, is to do with judging whether a film is good or bad, or explaining something in terms of like you've decoded a secret message. And there's definitely like a place for that. And I do do film reviews where it's kind of giving something a five star rating and telling you whether you should take your kids to see it or not. But at the same time, like a big part of a culture critic's job is analyzing something and helping the audience appreciate it, right? And I feel like if I was talking to someone who was an expert in sports, I'm not an expert in sports. And I would rather have someone explain to me why they love their sports team and why it's great rather than just like having like an argument about something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and that's right. And it's going to bring in, we were talking off air kind of about this podcast and and my direction for it, not to make this really like all about me or anything, but um, like, I want to bring in the layman. I want to bring in anyone that can, that can listen to, to this show specifically or any of my past nine episodes um, I, I don't, even if you're not interested in sports writing or YouTube or sneakers or, um, costume design or film reviews or anything like that, you might be more interested of it if it's going to be an inclusive conversation like this. And I think that that's important because, well, someone's not happy out there. Um, no. <laughs> so, uh, I, I think, I, I, I think that's a big thing about it. And actually that kind of side story, I recently just went to the comic book store in our neighborhood for the first time in like 20 years. Um, the first time I've like ever been in, into a comic book store. And I've been out oh, of like- what did you buy? Uh, Superman. But that was the thing is like, I I was asking people before I went there, um, it was a Superman DC All-Stars. I, I was like, I want to read Superman. I was like, but I don't know where to start. <laughs> it's That's an impossible question. It's like the variety is intimidating. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that that's it. I, I think that that's a part of geek culture as, as well. It's like, I'm not saying it's impossible for just quote unquote regular people to enjoy it. But I think it's, there's some intimidating aspects of it. If you don't know all these backstories or you don't know everything as thoroughly as some people do. Um, it's like, you know, is this, is this really for me? When in reality, really, it is like this is something that all people can enjoy that and, and so many millions of people do. And again, I think that that's like you're, you're kind of explaining like this is where I can start with Superman. That's kind of like what you're doing on your YouTube channel. It's like I, I, haven't, I had not seen a number of the films that you talked about, but it didn't matter. It's like I, I felt like I kind of knew the, the whys and hows of why I should see those films and, and uh you know, the interesting analysis of the costume design part, like we're going to get into in a little bit here, but yeah, I, I, I think, I think you did a great job of bringing in the casual viewer there. So I'm trying to say, well, thank you. That is, that is my goal. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really stood out to me about your YouTube channel behind the scenes, uh, the section of the, how Kira Knightley became the queen of costume drama video, um, about three and a half minutes in, you share your own philosophy about costume analysis. And you pose three questions. What do the costumes say about the character? What do they say about the film's tone and setting? And what do they say about society? And then so what we what I wanted to do kind of here is sort of break down that analysis a little bit and take some examples uh, that you applied in that same video. So what do Kira Knightley's costumes say about her character, Elizabeth Swan, in Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black 
Pearl compared to the costumes that she wore in, in subsequent films in that same series. Yeah, so the first thing I kind of see there is that this is a really mainstream blockbuster. It's a Disney movie. It's based in a theme park. It is not attempting to be a historically authentic drama and it's aimed at a very kind of diverse audience. They're trying to get as many people in and they're especially trying to get kids. So that character has to be likable. You need to understand her role for almost immediately with very little context. And also because she's the female lead in a blockbuster, she has to be attractive. So you have this role for her, which by the way, I love. I was really into those kids, those um, movies when I was a kid. And it's a it's an unusually good role for a female lead in that type of film because like she gets comedy, she gets action, she gets to have a great love story, you name it. But um, when she's introduced, you know, she's this kind of classic historical lady wearing a corset and the way her costume is introduced is sort of illustrating the fact that her life is quite constrained compared to the freedom of the pirates. So, you know, she's literally being laced into this outfit um, there is kind of pressure for her to be attractive, but at the same time, she kind of enjoys being attractive. It's just that she's being pressured to marry this guy who she's not in love with, where she'd much rather be going for Orlando Bloom, who at that point was like at the peak of beauty in the early 2000s, the, the Legolas era. <laughs> um, but like, it's very simple. Like it's, you know, if you had like a historian watch this film, they'd be like, well, that's vaguely what someone might have looked like in the 18th century, but it's a bit ridiculous that she'd be wearing a corset that tight in like the Caribbean. Um, like she'd have to move around but it doesn't really matter because it's a fairy tale and part of her job is just to look pretty and then in the later films because they're telling a story about her kind of gaining her own freedom and becoming a leader among the pirates they have her in what would be kind of perceived as a more masculine costume so she's wearing like trousers and a jacket and she's dressed as sort of the general image of like the theme park style historical pirates they have uh, throughout the series with but like with lots of gold brocade and stuff to show that she's a rich successful pirate king so that's kind of the evolution of her character in that franchise and it was also her breakout role like she was very young when they started though she was only 17 which is wild to think back on because she really does feel like an adult um, but she was you know that was her breakout role and it kind of cemented her image in Hollywood as this sort of plucky historical hero and she has definitely been sort of typecast as a historical heroine, which is kind of what my video was about. But it's not really a bad type of typecasting. She's really lent into that because um, from her perspective, she's actually been able to find more interesting roles in historical movies because it's a genre where you can be a woman who gets the protagonist role and like you won't necessarily be victimized or sexualized because a lot of these movies are aimed specifically at women because they're like films where you wear a beautiful gown and are like, finding empowerment in a difficult situation. Um, and I don't want to sort of stereotype there because like obviously everyone enjoys like a wide variety of movies and it's not like there's such a thing as women's pictures. Like that's a very, very outdated kind of term. But um, Hollywood does sort of aim things at particular demographics and she stars for the most part in very mainstream films. And um, yeah, you were kind of asking about like the comparisons between uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and other movies she's done. In my video, I was kind of looking at a variety of her historical films. She's done 29 or 30 at this point, which is wild because she's about, she's in her 30s. She's not that old. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's some films which are going for a different image. So if you look at her Pride and Prejudice film by director Joe Wright, who has directed many great historical films um, and also the action movie Hannah, which is excellent. Um, 
like Pride and Prejudice is a very well-known story and it kind of falls within this very well-known genre, Regency Romance, where we kind of have expectations. Even if you're only slightly familiar with it, you can kind of recognize the style of clothes that people wear in those, like sort of these white flowing dresses and their men are all sort of wearing cravats and they're ready to go riding and have like a romantic dispute in the middle of a moorland in England. And his idea for his version of Pride and Prejudice is he wanted it to be more gritty. He wanted it to feel sort of grounded and authentic. So all the characters are wearing sort of rougher clothes. Um, There is farmyard animals around her house. There is more a sense of sort of economic divides between her and her love interest, Mr. Darcy, who is meant to be sort of higher up on the class system in Britain. And Joe Wright also shifted the timeline of that film slightly. So um, the Regency era was sort of the beginning of the... Uh, 19th century but he sort of put it back to the end of the 18th century so it would be closer to the French Revolution and that would have supposedly like more of a subtextual uh, change in the class divides because all the people in Britain would be more conscious of the fact that all the aristocrats were just like beheaded in France but I don't think that's something any viewers are going to be picking up on it just means that the costumes look slightly different and that is kind of a more grounded and thoughtful attitude towards costuming rather than it being just an experience to do with very broad strokes entertainment which is what you get in a Disney movie yeah and I that that's really interesting you were what you're talking about and we're going to go into historical accuracy here too you you were mentioning about um Pirates of the Caribbean and it, it being on a theme park and then just this this Disney sort of idea of, of what pirates look like. And, you know, what's, what's interesting about it, I think, is that people bemoan historical accuracy. Like that's not really how it happened. That's not really what they look like, but I don't know that a lot of people want to see that as you pointed out, you know, in your, in your video of Karen Knightley, of uh, the comment about the smallpox scar and, and being, uh, you know, not having a, attractive body type or something like that. I I don't know that people want to see that, but, you know, do you find it interesting that that people have that kind of like love hate relationship with historical accuracy and in films of like what they say they want to see, but you know, what they're given from directors, producers? Yeah. I mean, I understand it. Right. And I definitely also do feel that way sometimes. So like, you know, if I watch Braveheart as a Scottish person, I'm just like, this is comically absurd. Like bears no resemblance to reality. Um, But in general, like I, I think people kind of, you want to, you want to feel smug, like you've outwitted a film by recognizing when something's wrong. But also when you know anything about any kind of topic and you see it displayed in pop culture, or even like reading a newspaper article about something you are an expert in, there's always going to be discrepancies and it always you always get annoyed. And in the context of a fictional movie, you might get annoyed by those discrepancies, but they don't actually matter. They might be errors that have been made on purpose because they make the story easier to tell or easier to digest for the target audience. And in general, I don't think that historical accuracy is, like philosophically, I don't think it's a real thing and I don't think it's an achievable goal because a lot of the time when we think about the concept of historical accuracy and kind of criticise it on film, we're fixating on superficial details. So, you know, the behavior of public figures where we have like recordings of them, like Winston Churchill or something, like there's so much attention is being paid to does Gary Oldman behave exactly like Winston Churchill or really meticulous recreations of outfits that we've seen in old footage or in portraits from longer ago. 
or particular props like Mad Men, which is like praised enormously for all of its props, that sort of thing. And I definitely recognize that that is a really important element of storytelling. And it's also very impressive that people are managed to do that. But it's only part of the storytelling process. And there's no way for people to kind of transfer the experiences of someone who lived like 300 years ago in a way that is going to be easily comprehensible in an hour and a half long movie today like there were whole periods of history when people had completely different outlooks on the world like you know for in Europe for hundreds of years like there was different interpretations of like the bible were shaping people's outlook of what happened in reality in the world you know to do with like magic and religion and like the intercession of god and that sort of thing and you know what people thought about medicine, what people thought about like gender roles and ownership and that sort of thing. Like it's so complicated. And the more you know about history, the more you're just going to be like, well, it's nothing like that at all. But the purpose of these movies are to entertain people and give you like an interesting emotional narrative. And I think it's okay for filmmakers to pick and choose what level of authenticity is comfortable for them to tell a story, you know? So you can tell a version of Macbeth which is really digging into the historical background for this play, which was written centuries after the character of Macbeth would have lived anyway. And then you're still reinterpreting like that old play through a modern lens and trying to simultaneously make it like quote unquote realistic. Or you can do that movie that came out a few years ago where you've got Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard wearing basically fantasy costumes, but it kind of feels historical because the lighting choices and the mud and the fire and stuff and like the music just feels sort of ancient and you're like, well, atmospherically, you've got it right. So there's like a lot of leeway and I feel like it's good to sort of develop a bit of intellectual flexibility about the concept of kind of aesthetic realism and spiritual realism in historical films. A plus. A plus answer on it. Very good. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I'm blown away. I'm blown away by, by your, your obvious love and um, just amazing detail on, um, on, on costume design analysis. This is, I, I've, I've never, I haven't done like an interview like this yet, obviously for the show. Well, it's fine. You know, and again, sharing something we were talking about again, off air, um, I, I, yeah, I, I love learning about things uh, like this. Again, it's like, I, you know, I, I know I've known of costume designs that were bad or uh, some that were loved by my fans and by film critics before, but it's kind of where my kind of understanding or maybe even appreciation for that sort of thing begins and ends. I don't think about it like this before, you know, and th this is, this is really opening my eyes. Um, so I'm, I'm blown away. This is, this is excellent stuff. Um, you've also mentioned, you know, in the uh, Keira Knightley video, and you say very eloquently too, that Hollywood's idea of gritty realism often involves men being violent and miserable and women being exploited. Um, if you just expound on that, maybe just a little bit, what you meant by that? Well, I mean, I think it kind of summarizes it quite well, actually. But like, just when you see... There's certain types of films which are taken very seriously because they are perceived as gritty, which is a word that is very malleable, like it has a lot of different interpretations. Um, but it kind of implies the idea that the more unpleasant life is for the main characters, 
the more authentic and seriously we should be taking it, which is why kind of in recent decades, we've seen far less awards recognition for comedies and sort of lighthearted movies and films that have perhaps what would be perceived as, I guess, more feminine themes. So like, if you look at films from like 30 years ago, even like Marissa Tomei won an Oscar for My Cousin Vinny, which is like a comedy where she just sort of is a funny girlfriend. And she has an incredible role in that. But now kind of the stereotype of an Oscar movie is like someone who's really suffering. And when you look at sort of the reboots of popular blockbuster franchises and like sci-fi properties a lot of the time the idea is that we need to make them more mature by making life more unpleasant for the characters and there's definitely ways in which that's true because like an adult story often can be more violent or tackle themes that wouldn't necessarily be suitable for children but you can also look at children's entertainment, like, you know, the animated series Avatar The Last Airbender is like a wartime epic that ta- tackles some pretty like hard hitting political topics. But you can watch it as an eight year old and it's a comedy. And I feel like people who really fixate on the idea of gritty reboots as a superior form of storytelling have kind of lost sight of the fact that most stories that really work also have like a balance between you know comedy and romance and likable characters as well as really difficult stuff happening to those characters and the best way to engage emotionally is to have that balance correct instead of it just being dark and horrible all the time let's talk about uh geek culture a little bit and uh so the the writing and and the things that you do again on uh, your youtube channel um is it you know, I, I've already said that you, you've converted me into more of a thoughtful, informed uh, observer of, of film and TV and geek media, I guess. Not that I didn't really want to be before, but is, is one of like your desires for for your work and, and especially what you do on behind the scenes to make people understanding more why they're watching what they're watching and what they're what they're consuming? Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good kind of summary. Um, it's something I think about less consciously than with my costume design work, because that's like a very specific niche topic. Whereas in my day job at The Daily Dot, um, that's a, like an extremely mainstream topic that has a lot of other people writing about it. So for the most part, my writing there is reviews of like really big blockbuster releases like Marvel, Star Wars, DC, um, and kind of indie sci-fi films as well, and like coverage of comics and also coverage of fan culture. And that is really at the moment kind of the dominant force in film and TV culture at the moment. Like that is a massively influential sphere. And there's a lot to be said about like what elements of that are resonating with audiences and what elements of that are very clearly dictated by kind of corporate financial interests. Like with Disney, it's the reason why there's a lot of quite conservative casting choices made in Marvel and Star Wars movies is because like they are being financially conservative and trying to appeal to like a very mainstream audience. Whereas if you look at like an indie drama, you're more likely to have creators who are going to do something more artistically experimental or cast a more diverse range of actors. Why, why do you think uh, in, in talking about superheroes in both you know comic books, films, TV, why do you think that that's uh, a story type of story that resonates so well with people and has been as historically popular as it's been? Well, first of all, it's a simple, easily digestible, like emotional arc that works like a fairy tale where there's clearly delineated good and evil and 
like you can follow the emotional journey very simply so it's like given to you in this fun popcorn blockbuster format and also something that I think people don't really take into account very much is how much everyone loves extremely repetitive story formulas because almost every blockbuster film has an extremely similar arc usually about like a hero coming from nothing and then like achieving something and you know like the Lord of the Rings arc, but also every superhero origin story is extremely formulaic. And that is also the same thing we see with like every TV show that is really successful. And I'm not talking about, you know, shows that are getting Emmys or shows that are getting loads of critical acclaim. I'm talking about the shows that are doing well with audiences in terms of numbers. So like NCIS, you know, they all have extremely formulaic 40 minute episodes where you can tune in and have a predictable kind of emotional arc and that's very soothing and most of us have very stressful lives and there's nothing wrong with that format of storytelling and I feel like the the blockbuster films of that type are just doing that in a more complex and kind of large-scale way than when we are watching you know procedural crime dramas on tv which all just tell you the same story every week so would you say it's kind of like an escape for people oh for sure I mean superhero movies are incredibly escapist and I don't think that that really clashes with the idea of doing smart and good superhero movies. Like Black Panther is an incredibly thematically complex movie, right? With loads of thought has gone into it aesthetically and politically. And you can analyze a film like that or most of the Star Wars movies in a very deep way. And there's a lot to dig into, but you can also just watch them really superficially because like they're fun and silly and they follow a very familiar arc. What's your favorite part about writing about geek culture and, and, you know, and doing this YouTube channel and, talking about it on podcasts like this one. (laughs) Well, I mean, I enjoy the films. I love virtually every genre of movies. And I actually, I have a podcast of my own where I do like a more wide variety of films. Like we kind of talk about indie dramas as well. So I kind of, it's not just like blockbusters, but um, yeah, I mean, I enjoy these films and I think it's something I'm good at. And I like to be part of the discussion where people are kind of, gaining a better understanding of like their own tastes and the world through art. And that is the overinvested podcast, right? Oh yeah. Overinvested podcast. That's my one that I do with my friend Morgan, who's also a film critic. Be sure to check that out. Uh, okay. Well, it's time for the bonus round. Uh, five questions sometimes, but not always relating to my guest's area of expertise. Are you ready for the bonus round? Go ahead. Hit me. All right. Question one, I have to ask you, what is your audio setup made of? Because I'm sure there's a, probably a few podcasters listening to this episode wondering, how do I sound as good as that? <laughs> well, we did we did hear a car driving past my window earlier, so it's not perfect. I'm not currently like fully in, like surrounded by a cupboard or anything. But what I have is a Yeti blue mic, which has uh, a pop shield on the front and then sort of a like a microphone, like a foam shield behind it. So I think... Hopefully that's uh that's working okay. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I have too, and I don't feel nice sound that good. Maybe I got to do something about it. I feel, I mean, and I've had to again. We talked about the software. Uh, uh, really, the rooms in my house uh, make a big difference. The the room that I used to that I did a few episodes in, and it sounded really kind of underwatery. Had it, it used to be part of the garage, and they they shortened the garage and made this room into a, an area where the former owner used to teach music lessons, but it has like wood paneling on the wall and stuff, a lot of hard surfaces. 
And I think it was just bouncing off of that a lot. And so I do these. Yeah, I don't have any carpets, which I think is an issue. Like there's no carpets. So I think it might make things a bit echoey sometimes. Yeah. And and, and when I do when I do these episodes in my, my daughter's room, and there's all the fuzzy stuff around, blankets, toys, whatever, plush stuff, much better. So I think that that's, that's probably it. Question two, you're, you're, you live in Scotland, um, but differences between uh, Scotland and maybe like a city like Glasgow versus a city like London. For someone or an American who's never been to either of those countries, uh, what would you say the biggest difference is culturally between them? Well, I did live in London for a few years as an adult, and uh, it's much busier, it's much dirtier. The kind of economic disparity is much more obvious, and it's very expensive. Um, I'd say in terms of like the difference with an American city, because like I have been to America a few times to various places, is that um, people here don't really drive. I only know like one person with a car. Uh, we walk most places and like or use public transport, but like Glasgow as a city is very pedestrian. There's a lot of trees. Um, even though obviously it's raining all the time, we're all used to it because we're Scottish. Um, and Glasgow is quite a friendly city. Like people do talk to each other, which is not really the same in London. Like most of the time, if someone was trying to speak to me in London, it would be like a weird drunk man trying to talk to me on the train or something. But here it's just quite a quite a chill atmosphere. So yeah. Okay, that sounds that sounds fantastic. If we had better public transit in, I don't know, anywhere in Ohio, I'd use it. We have buses and stuff, and but I don't know, like trains or anything like that. Yeah, it may exist, but we drive. It's in the Midwest. Yeah, we drive everywhere. Everyone's got a car. So that's an interesting difference. Uh, in question three, multiple choice. Okay. Which of these comic book characters uh, for in, in film had the worst costume design, in your opinion? Okay. Five films. Batman from Batman and Robin, 1997, George Clooney. The Juggernaut. X-Men Last Stand, it's 2006. Catwoman, Halle Berry, 2004, film of the same name. Steel, Shaquille O'Neal, 1997, or Fantastic Four from 1994. Hmm. Okay, I'm just thinking. I think it's got to be Catwoman, because um, that is a competitive field. I feel like the Fantastic Four costumes are too dull to be bad. Um, <laughs> and in terms of Batman and Robin, that seems like it should be the most obvious answer because that is an infamously bad movie that tanked the franchise, and it's very famous because that's the one where Batman and Robin have nipples on the exterior of their of their outfits. Um, but I actually feel that those outfits are appropriate for the tone of the movie, which is like very silly and comedic and campy. I'm actually going to be doing a video about that soon enough oh, because I, I love I love Batman and I think that movie is perhaps in some ways unfairly maligned although obviously I'm not going to argue that it's a great film that credit card um, that credit card come on there's no way he gets his own um, line of credit maybe he doesn't need one he's Bruce Wayne come on he's Bruce Wayne um but yeah I think Catwoman because it's just like so it's just like so insulting to the Michelle Pfeiffer version like the Catwoman costume that Halle Berry had to wear just looks so cheap and like sexy in a bad way. <laughs> Whereas the one that Michelle Pfeiffer wore in like 1992 is like, it's very sexy and it fits in with her role as sort of like there's dominatrix undertones and it fits in with the tone of the movie, which is, you know, it's quite fantastical and gothic, but it has like a sense of fun 
And she just looks amazing in it and kind of her body language and stuff really fits. Whereas the Halle Berry Catwoman is just awkward and ridiculous from top to bottom. <laughs> you know what I, What a younger me and maybe still an older me now remembers from the Michelle Pfeiffer one, beside the way that she looked in it, was the sheen, the light, how it struck yes. her costume. Yes. That, that was back when Tim Burton still made good movies. Yeah. And then, uh, well, not so much. Um if you could wear any costume, question four, you could wear any costume to San Diego Comic-Con, any of your favorite films, t- uh, TV shows, comic books, which would it be and why? Uh, you see, you told me this question before we started, and I've, I still haven't thought of a good answer. We can go on my to favorite, question five if you want to. Yes, my favorite franchise is Star Wars, so it would be a Star Wars character. Um, yeah. Gosh, maybe one of the Rogue One characters because I really like those those outfits in Rogue One. Okay, good answer. I like that. Um, in question five, fill in the blank. You ever have a chance to visit Glasgow, Scotland? Make sure you grab a bite to eat at blank. Uh, Chai Ovna, the vegetarian tea cafe. Um, the kind of stereotype of the food that you should try in Glasgow is a deep fried Mars bar, which you may try at your own risk. It certainly has an appealing concept i think it's quite disgusting but um chayovna tea cafe when it hopefully reopens uh just like a very relaxing sort of happy cafe that has like a million different kinds of tea and very sort of wholesome warm food when you've been out in the cold all day 80 varieties of tea vegetarian food this is what google says uh yeah 4.6 out of 5 787 reviews that's strong the glasgow institution <laughs> <laughs> make sure to visit there okay and of course I give all my guests on Let's Ask an Expert the last word whenever you're ready, have at it. Just a word? Well, it can be a phrase. It doesn't need to, I mean, the last word in quotation marks isn't a literal word. But again, you could you could say one word. I, I can't stop you from doing okay. that. My last word is stay hydrated. That's it, just right there. Stay hydrated. That's good. I'm stay hydrated. I'm doing it. <laughs> well, for my expert guests... Gabby Baker of White Law. I am your host, Andrew Smith, and we will see you next time on Let's Ask an Expert. <laughs> <laughs>